0: Welcome, this is Marcia for Radio Eye, and today I will be reading National Geographic Magazine dated February 2023. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Please join me now for the article I began last time entitled Best of the World by George W. Stone. Chocacuaro, Peru, one of the most remote Inca sites in the Peruvian Andes, the ruins of Chocacuaro are reserved for the hardy few who put in the effort to reach their 10,000-foot elevation. Many myths exist around Chocacuaro, says archaeologist Gori Tumi Echevarria. Its numerous temples, terraces, and plazas are yet to be fully excavated, but new infrastructure plans are expected to boost visitation to Machu Picchu's sister city. The government has pledged to spend $260 million to build a cable car spanning three miles between the town of Cunyala and the site. Development may create more economic opportunity for locals at the expense of Chococorrao's serenity. For now, the ruins remain a place of seclusion that calls out to any traveler's imagination. The next article, The Future is Folded. Origami has long inspired artists. Now it's blazing new trails in science and technology by Maya Wai-Haas. A cacophony of barking alerts me to the cardboard box delivered to my front door. Packed inside is a single sheet of white corrugated plastic folded into what looks like a large suitcase. My canine companions take a curious sniff as I unfurl the rigid form, which spans nearly the width of my living room. Pushing outward on the creases of one side, I hear a shockingly loud pop. The dogs sprint for cover, scrambling across wood floors while I frantically look for damage, heart pounding. But nothing's broken. Instead, the plastic suitcase is transformed and suddenly a full-size kayak is sitting in my living room. The boat, created by the company Oru Kayak, is part of a scientific and technological revolution inspired by the centuries-old art of origami. What began as efforts to understand the math behind fold patterns has opened up, surprisingly, possibilities for manipulating the shape, movement, and properties of all kinds of materials. Filters of face masks, the plastic of kayaks, even living cells. I just can't keep up, says Robert J. Lang, a preeminent origami artist who previously worked as a laser physicist. That's a wonderful place for the field to be. The art of origami has existed in Japan since at least the 17th century, but there are hints of paper folding from long before. Initially, models were simple and, because paper was expensive, used largely for ceremonial purposes, such as the male and female paper butterflies known as ocho and mecho, that festoon sake bottles at Shinto weddings. As paper prices fell, origami's uses spread to gift wrap, playthings and even geometry lessons for kids. Then in the mid-20th century, origami master Akira Yoshikazawa helped elevate paper folding to a fine art. He breathed life and personality into each creature he designed. From a stern-faced gorilla glowering out of sunken eyes to a baby elephant joyfully swinging its trunk, With the publication of his first origami book in 1954, Yoshizawa also made the art form more accessible, establishing an easily understandable language of dotted lines, dashes, and arrows that contributed to systems still used today. In the late 1950s, Yoshizawa's delicate forms inspired Tomoko Fuse, now one of the foremost origami artists in Japan. Her father gave her Yoshizawa's second origami book when she was recovering from diphtheria as a child. Fuse methodically crafted every model, and she's been entranced with origami ever since. It's like magic, she says. Just one flat paper becomes something wonderful. Among her many achievements, Fousey is famous for her advances in modular origami, which uses interlocking units to create models with greater flexibility and potential complexity. But she thinks of her work as less about creation than about discovering something that's already there. Like a treasure hunter, she says. She describes her process as if she's watching from afar, following wherever the paper leads her. Suddenly, beautiful patterns come out. Indeed, origami taps into patterns that echo throughout the universe, seen in natural forms such as leaves emerging from a bud or insects tucking their wings. For these exquisite folds to become scientifically useful, however, researchers must not only discover the patterns but also understand how they work, and that requires math. Putting numbers to origami's intriguing patterns has long driven the work of Thomas Hull, a mathematician at Western New England University in Springfield, Massachusetts. When I walk into his school's math department, I know immediately which office is his. The door at the end of the hall is ajar, revealing boldly colored paper folded in all manner of geometric shapes. The models fill every nook of the small room, hanging from the ceiling, adorning the bookshelves, and surrounding the desktop computer. Hull himself is a riot of color and pattern. Black and white spirals dance across his shoes, which are tied with purple laces. He's long been fascinated by patterns and still remembers unfolding a paper crane at age 10 and marveling at the ordered creases in the flat sheet. There are rules at play that allow this to work, he recalls, thinking. Hull and others have spent decades working to understand the mathematics governing the world of origami. As we chat, Hull pulls out an array of models that are folded in intriguing shapes or move in unexpected ways. One is an impossible looking sheet folded with ridges of concentric squares, which cause the paper to twist in an elegant swoop known as a hyperbolic paraboloid. Par- paraboloid. Another is a sheet folded in a series of mountains and valleys called the Miura-ori pattern, which collapses or opens with a single tug. Dreamed up by astrophysicist Koryu Miura in the 1970s, the pattern was used to compact the solar panels of Japan's Space Flyer Unit, which launched in 1995. In the years since, origami has been applied to many different types of materials, including tiny sheets of cells. This unusual medium coats the self-folding structure created by Kaori Kuribayashi Shigetomi at Hokkaido University. When probed, the cells contract, transforming flat structures into cellular Lego blocks, as she says, that could one day aid in growing organs. Despite origami's current popularity in science and technology, researchers' early folding forays and resistance Hull still remembers a discussion he had in 1997 with a program officer from the National Science Foundation, NSF, a U.S. government agency that supports research and education. Hull was outlining a potential project when the program officer cut him off to say that the NSF would never fund a research proposal with origami in the title. This skepticism wasn't limited to the United States. Tomohiro Tachi, a prominent origami engineer at the University of Tokyo, looks down with a smile when I ask if he's ever faced resistance to his work. People in Japan, he says, often view origami as child's play, but that perception has shifted over the past couple of decades, with the NSF spearheading much of the change. During a temporary posting at the organization started in 2009, Glauccio Paulino pushed to fund research involving origami. The process was brutal, says Paolino, who is now a professor of engineering at Princeton. We were always in the hot seat, trying to defend the idea. But the effort paid off. In 2011, the NSF issued the first two calls for proposals mixing origami and science and teams of researchers flocked to submit ideas. The move lent legitimacy to the burgeoning field and the use of origami in science blossomed. There was this resistance, Lang says, it was something whose time had come. Origami is now pushing the limits of what scientists think is possible, particularly as the tiniest of scales. On a blazing hot summer day, I meet up with Mark Miskin, an electrical engineer at the University of Pennsylvania. Inside the airy lobby of UPenn's SING Center for Nanotechnology, we peer through a bright orange glass wall into a series of rooms where people dressed head-to-toe in Tyvek sit at microscopes or work under vent hoods. It feels like a world away from the colorful chaos of Hull's office, but origami may prove no less vital here. Miskin and his students have been using the clean room to craft an army of robots no bigger than a speck of dust. Such tiny bots require big creativity. Gears and most other mechanisms with moving parts work best in the human-sized world, where momentum and inertia rule. Miskin explains, But that's not the case at tiny scales, where forces like friction are enormous, causing everything to stick. Gears won't turn, wheels don't spin, belts don't run. That's where origami comes in. Fold patterns will bend and move the same way at any size, at least theoretically. Created using the same techniques as the computer chip industry, Miskin's robots look like fat flakes with arms and legs. When exposed to a trigger, such as voltage, their limbs bend, helping them walk through a drop on a glass slide or wave at a passing amoeba. Miskin sees a world of possible ways these tiny bots could be used, from manufacturing to medicine. For now, though, pushing the limits is what's most important to him. If you go after hard problems, he says, you'll be w- rewarded with interesting technology. Origami holds particular promise for biomedicine. For instance, a team led by Daniela Rus director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, developed a robot that can fold to fit into a pill capsule. After the capsule is ingested, the bot unfolds and can be directed around the digestive system using programmable magnetic fields. An initial test demonstrated one possible use, removing swallowed button batteries from the stomach a potentially deadly condition experienced by thousands of children each year. Imagine embedding medicine or using it to patch a wound, Ross says. Just imagine a future of surgeries with no incisions, no pain, and no risk of infection. These types of big dreams are where origami seems to help science flourish most. The venerable art form has provided a new toolkit to ignite the imagination and create technologies once thought impossible including a kayak that folds down small enough to fit in a car's trunk. On a bright fall afternoon, I take my kayak for a spin on Virginia's Lake Acotink. The plastic suitcase draws curious looks from passersby as I unfold it. Perhaps one day folding forms will be seen as prosaic, but for now origami will continue to spark wonder and excitement as it propels science, medicine, and technology into the future, and keeps me afloat as I shove off from the lake shore. The next article, Moon Views in Rainbow Hues. The moon's actual color is an off white brown grey when its dusty surfaces sunlit. But Earth's atmosphere modifies our views of the moon, altering colors and shape. Italian photographer Marcella Giolapace, who has captured Lunar variations for 10 years chose 48 of her images to show in this spiral moon The varied colors appear when the moon is seen or photographed through stratified and irregular gas layers of Earth's atmospheric blanket. Tiny air molecules in the layers scatter light that hits them and their structure causes blue light to scatter more readily than red or orange. When, for example, Pace photographs the moon through the densest air as it rises and as it sits just above the horizon, this phenomenon is especially intense, glowing more red or orange. Other materials in the atmosphere, water droplets, dust, will wicky-like smoke also influence the path of light and affect the moon's hues and those colors are specific to the suspended materials themselves. The moon's apparent shape also is altered as the light is emitted travels through the stratified air because the atmosphere's nearest Earth's surface is much denser than high above. The path of light traveling those varied densities will bend. The result, the light's source appears as a squished ellipse instead of a human disk. The Dawn of Jaws, New Fossil Discoveries from China, Shine Light on a Pivotal Moment of Evolution, the Arrival of the First Vertebrates with Oddness-to-Goodness Jaws, by Michael Greshko. One of the most critical steps in the evolution of vertebrate life, even bigger than our aquatic forebears' first waddles onto land, was the evolution of the jaw. From biting food to vocalizing, the jaw is essential to the survival of 99.8% of living vertebrates, including us humans. Of the jawless fish that once abounded in Earth's ancient seas, only lampreys and hagfish remained today. The rich story chronicling the rise of... Nathostomes, also known as jawed vertebrates, has long been missing the first few pages, but now rocks in China have yielded the oldest known complete skeletons and teeth of nathostomes ever found. In four studies recently published in the journal Nature, scientists led by Chinese paleontologist, Min Zhu, described fossil menageries from two rock formations, 436 million and 439 million years old, respectively, in southern China, all within some 60 miles of the town of Yongdong. Though the fossils are tiny, inch-long skeletons and whorls of teeth only fractions of inches across, they're packed with anatomical detail and begin to fill a gap in the fossil record. Living vertebrates' DNA suggest that the earliest jaw's vertebrates had arisen by no later than 450 million years ago, but their oldest skeletons had topped out at 425 million years old until the new fossils. Their discovery has given humans an impressive evolutionary legacy to chew on. Fed Chirayath by Priyana Runwal. This scientist is on a mission to map the world's oceans, centimeter by centimeter. About a decade ago, when Ved Chirayoff learned that more than 90% of the planet's seafloor remained unexplored, he was stunned. It was a stark contract to the, contrast to the detailed maps of Mars and the moon he'd seen as an engineering graduate student developing devices to observe celestial bodies. Chirayoff decided to apply techniques from space exploration to begin imagining the ocean. Baseline maps are vital, he says, because if we don't know what's there we won't know how to protect it. There there were big challenges. Sonar commonly used to gather data from large swaths of the ocean can't provide high resolution, while satellite images can't penetrate ocean depths and are distorted by waves. So the University of Miami professor and National Geographic Explorer created FluidCam equipped with a specialized digital camera and software to see through water and MIDAR, which adds high-intensity light. These tools, often carried by a drone, are helping his team map sea features to the centimeter in places such as Guam. Since 2020, citizen scientists have lent a hand by playing the Nemo Net video game to spot coral reefs in a virtual ocean made from the images. The data will be used to train supercomputers that will one day map reefs around the globe. Next article, these moods were made of what? By Dina Fine Maron. Selling items made from protected wildlife may be unlawful, but as National Geographic discovered, that's hard to prove. The six-pound box arrived on a steamy June day, hot from its ride in the delivery van. The label said Boot Barn in capital letters, and when I opened the package, the oaky scent of leather enveloped me. The lower half of the boots had a distinct wrinkly pattern that was rough to the touch. Stamped inside the boots shaft, genuine elephant leather at a list price of $799.99, $799.99, they'd been advertised online as El Dorado Men's Brass Indian Elephant Exotic Boots. That is, boots purportedly made from an endangered Asian elephant. After four years as a reporter for Wildlife Watch, an investigative project funded by the National Geographic Society, I knew there was a market for just about any exotic species, from leasy leeches to rare succulents. Had become difficult to shock but selling asian or indian elephant boots that sounded unprecedented and potentially unlawful under the convention on international trade in endangered species of wild fauna and flora sites according to john scanlon from 2010 to 2018 scanlon was secretary general of sites which regulates the global wildlife trade. Asian and African elephants are endangered animals. How could Boot Barn, a major US retailer, be selling these boots? So began an inquiry that involved months of interviews, research in trade and financial records, innovative materials, analysis, and any number of dead ends. What we learned finally was a hard but valuable lesson. Efforts to monitor compliance with regulations that govern wildlife products can be stymied by the difficulties of proving the item's provenance. Only 400,000 African elephants and 50,000 Asian elephants are left in the world. Most Asian elephants are found in India and have what could be called a biological advantage over their African counterparts. More often than not, they are tuskless. That helps shield them from the ivory trade, which has driven the slaughter of African elephants. Among Asian elephants, only males can grow tusks and relatively few develop them. The chief threat to Asian elephants still comes from people by way of habitat loss and human-animal conflict on farms and other land. Increasingly, the trade in elephant skin has also become a problem. The skin is sometimes used to make beads worn for good luck in Myanmar and China. But there hadn't been reports of Asian elephant boots, so National Geographic set out to discover if Boot Barn's boots actually contained elephant skin, and if so, how they could be sold by a major U.S. retailer. I talked to wildlife and trade law experts. I scoured sites' records looking for legal elephant skin shipments, and I identified which company made the boots. But beyond that, answers were hard to find. In the hope of determining the boot's origin, National Geographic bought a pair to send for DNA testing. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before the purchase, I'd called and emailed Boot Barn for weeks asking about the boots and their sourcing. I got no response to almost a dozen emails, phone calls, and LinkedIn messages addressed to the retailers, chief financial officer, communications office, and people listed as press and investor relations contacts. I also called customer service and reached a representative who said she'd look into it and call me back. I never heard from her. The last request for comment addressed to Bo- Boot Barn's president and chief executive officer was sent in the weeks before this article went to press. That request received no response. Boot Barn's advertisement said the boots were made by a company called El Dorado. By searching for Eldorado's patent records and then Boot Barn's public financial disclosures to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, I discovered that Eldorado is an exclusive brand of Boot Barn Holdings, Inc. Boot Barn's public website lists Eldorado as one of the boot brands the retailer has created. I asked Jonathan Colby, a National Geographic explorer who used to work as a wildlife inspector, to examine the boot photograph in the advertisement. He said the material did look like real elephant leather he'd seen. Teresa Talecki, a zoologist and the vice president of the wildlife department at Humane Society International said the same. I've never seen Asian elephant skin boots for sale, she told me. When I asked the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service which policies U.S. companies trade in products from protected species about the rules for elephant skin, the response was a statement. As a result of the Asian elephant's protection status, commercial import and subsequent sale of skins could only be legal pursuant to the antique exception of the Endangered Species Act. The antique exception, says products from protected species can be imported and sold, if they are at least hundred years old. A similar site's exception allows global trade of products that date to before the animal was placed on its banded list, band list. In the Asian elephants case, that happened in 1975. Even then, global sales of the product would have to be noted in sites' trade records, which are public. When I searched those records, no shipments of Asian elephant skins seemed to line up as a potential source. Another grim possibility, what if the skins had come from captive elephants in the United States, perhaps sold off by one of the country's numerous roadside zoos? Tulecki noted it would still be illegal to sell them across state lines under the Endangered Species Act. Dan Ash, president and CEO of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, had another theory about the boots' origin. He suggested that if the boots were genuinely elephant skin, it might have come from a recent U.S. import of African elephant skin pieces from Zimbabwe. Though trade in Asian elephant parts is prohibited under sites, there's a legal carve-out for the trade in elephant hides from four African nations that have relatively stable elephant populations—Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa. To explore the question Ash raised, might boot barns Indian boots have been made from African elephant? I called Sam Wasser at the University of Washington. He directs a lab that has successfully traced the origins of elephant ivory using using DNA analysis. If we provided the boots, could his team determine whether they're elephant and, if so, which species? Wasser said they'd try but couldn't guarantee that the leather tanning process had left usable nuclear DNA. After the boots arrived at my house, on that hot June day, I shipped them to Wasser's lab. Samples of the leather were prepared and tested, but no nuclear DNA was found. Wildlife genetics lab manager Zofia Saliszewska said the DNA could be absent because tannins had killed everything during processing, or because it truly wasn't elephant. In a last-ditch effort, Kazaluski said the lab had the lab looked for mitochondrial DNA, which might have survived even if the nuclear DNA they'd hoped to find had been destroyed. That MT DNA couldn't identify an elephant species, but it might at least tell us if elephant skin was present at all. The lab team that spent several days looking for MT DNA, it stuck out there too. So after all the time, money, and effort, we still couldn't determine the boot's provenance. Was Boot Barn making and selling boots legally or illegally from Asian elephants, or making boots legally or illegally from African elephants and misrepresenting them? Or were these boots not made from elephant at all? Here's what we can say, our investigation of the boot's origin gives a glimpse of the obstacles that wildlife law enforcement, regulatory, and trade agencies face in monitoring online sellers of wildlife goods. As hard as these groups may work, they're likely outgunned on the internet, a global hub in the multi-million dollar black market for exotic animals and animal products, a key reason Wildlife Watch was founded at National Geographic. As months passed, I continued to watch Boot Barn's website. By the time this article went to press, the company seemed eager to move its elephant leather boots they were advertising on sale 34% off. Asian elephants are about eight times as rare as their African cousins. They are also smaller, have rounded ears, and extra toenail, and more often are tuskless. They employ their entire trunks to lift objects, while African elephants have two trunk tips for such tasks. This concludes readings from National Geographic magazine for today. Your reader has been Marsha. If you've enjoyed hearing this content, please give us a call at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening and have a great day.